All right, I have some bad news, some bad news for the kids. We don't have worksheets tonight for you, I'm sorry. I do have some pictures, though. I have some pictures, so we can look at some pictures. That, that may help the adults as well. So I'm going to start with a picture here. Who can tell me what that event is? Yes, they're in the back. It's the inauguration, right, of who is this guy? Kids, you know this guy? Donald Trump. Oh, yes, yes, Donald Trump, right? So this, this part maybe is more for the adults, but I, I don't know about you, but of all the inaugurations we've ever had, I was a little more nervous about the transition of power this year than I had been in previous years. With all of the threats, with all of the anger there was over the election and how things went, uh, it was, I, I think, perhaps the first year that I really had some concerns about what were people going to do to try and resist this transition of power that uh, was supposed to take place. Um, our country has a long history of successful transition of power. That's been a unique thing about America is that we have one president who's basically in charge of the country and then we can turn it over to another president without there being a war or fight or people dying. That's unique because in a lot of kingdoms and countries where there's a transition of power, a lot of times there's fighting and there's war. So America's been very unique in that, and we've had a smooth transition of power. Well, in 1 Kings today, we're going to talk about a transition of power as well. So we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 1, and we'll be talking about a transition of power, a transition of power in 1 Kings 1. Um, before we do that, reading though to get us started there I just want to remind you of a couple things we talked about from Deuteronomy since we're just starting first Kings uh, we talked about in Deuteronomy how God uh, had made some rules for Kings uh, in Deuteronomy 7 14 to 20 he said first of all that he was still going to be the one that should appoint who's going to be the king now in in uh, nations around Israel, um, like I said, it could be lots of fighting and warfare to determine who's going to be the next king, um, but God was saying that's his job to pick who's the next king. They were supposed to respect that. Um, Israel is also, the, the king of Israel is not to multiply his horses. We talked about horses are an instrument of warfare, and so we the kings, even though they were in charge of leading the country and would have to lead the army, they needed to trust God ultimately to give them the victory, not horses or weapons of warfare, even though they would have to use them. Uh, they also weren't supposed to multiply wives. Who remembers why the king wasn't supposed to have many wives? What, what would many wives do to his heart? It would turn his heart away, right? Turn his heart away from the Lord to worship other gods. Because these many different women would be worshiping other gods and to try and please his wife as a man does, he would be drawn away to worship her gods too. 
So God said kings shouldn't multiply his wives. And he shouldn't multiply gold, trying to make himself rich. All right? Uh, which could also turn his heart away from God. He says he wasn't supposed to go down to Egypt to get horses and things because God brought them out. And most importantly, um, or one of the most important here, is they were supposed to make a copy of the scriptures for themselves. As the king, they needed to know what the law of God said so they could ob obey it and also help enforce it in the land. So the kings needed to do this. What we'll see as we go through the book of Kings, most of them do a very poor job on these things. Um, and it's what led to their downfall and the ultimate, ultimately the captivity that we see at the end of those two books. All right? So they needed to obey the word of God for success. So I want you to see in 1 Kings 1, we're going to look there tonight. So with kings... We have to do a bit of reading. So we'll do a fair bit of reading. We won't read every verse in the chapter. It's 53, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll read several. So let's start with verses 1 through 4, and then we'll go ahead and pray. It says in verse 1, Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servants said to him, let him seek a young virgin who may be for, my, uh, for the Lord, the king, and let her attend to the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in his bosom that the Lord may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. All right. It says the, ki the girl was very beautiful and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. All right, so we have here a situation of vulnerability in the kingdom of Israel. King David has been the king. He's been a good king. He's, been a, he's, he's not a perfect king. He did have that incident with Bathsheba and Uriah and all the wrong things he did there, but he repented of that, and he has been one who has consistently, other than that, followed the Lord and encouraged the people to do the same thing. So he's been a good king, but it's a time of vulnerability for the kingdom because David is old. Not only is David old, he is weak. He's basically bedridden. He's, he's uh, lying around all the time. He can't get warm. He's basically near death. And this is a time of vulnerability or weakness for the kingdom because David apparently has not made it public who's supposed to be the next king. Now, if you're, if you're thinking logically about how who becomes the next king, who's typically the next king? When there's a king, it's typically... Yeah. Okay, you know the answer. It's going to be Solomon. But I mean in general, right? So Solomon is David's... So you're right. Solomon is David's son, right? So it's a king's son, a prince, if you will, becomes the next king, right? The problem is, David has more than one son. So which one of those sons is going to be the next king? Well, we, we learn through reading this that David already knew who it was going to be, but apparently the public didn't know. And David is weak and infirmed, bedridden, and so 
there's a vulnerability here. There's a gap. There's a gap in leadership. There's an opportunity for somebody to take advantage. So we see here actually on verse 20, look at verse 20, we see Bathsheba actually goes to talk to David. And she says, As for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. So in other words, he hadn't said it publicly. They didn't know. So there's a time of vulnerability. There's a time of weakness. And when there's a weakness in leadership, what tends to happen? Somebody tends to step into that weakness and take over. Starts running the show, right? We see the same thing happens in families, right? In families, if, if the dad is not a good, strong leader, who has to fill in? His wife feels pressure to step in and fill that gap, right? Even though the, the husband, the, the father, is supposed to be the leader. In all kinds of situations, same thing happens in churches. When there's a weakness in church leadership, some people who are inclined may feel tempted to jump in and take leadership. And then we're going to see that's what happens. Somebody steps in who's not supposed to. It's a time of vulnerability. It's a time of weakness, and there's danger here. But I think what we'll see here tonight is this is yet another example of how God takes care of his people in times of weakness, in times of vulnerability. In times of danger, God takes care of his people. Now, I would uh, remind you of a few examples. What happened in Egypt? Joseph, you remember Joseph, God sent down there, uh, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and so Pharaoh made him second in charge in Egypt, and he uh, ended up bringing his whole family down eventually. They multiplied, and the Israelites were everywhere, and the Egyptians later on, generations later, got scared because the Israelites were so many. So what did they do to the Israelites? They put them in slavery. They were killing the young boy children. That was a threat to the nation of Israel. That was a threat. That was a threat to God's people um, because God also had made promises about the seed of the woman that was coming, his plan Messiah. He also uh, uh, so made promises to Abraham as well. And those were in jeopardy by how the Egyptians were treating Israel. It was a very dangerous, vulnerable time for the children of Israel. Yet God brought them out. You remember also with me the time of Esther. There was that uh, one, one man, um, ha, ha, what's his, it's not Hagar, I keep thinking Hagar, but what? Haman, Haman. They, they, I knew it was H-A something. All right, Haman hated Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down and worship him, so he basically wanted to kill Mordecai and all of his people, the Jews, right? A very dangerous time for the Jews and a very scary time. But God used Esther and Mordecai at that time to appeal to the king, and Haman uh, was, ended up getting hanged, and the Jews were able to defend themselves, and God's people were preserved. So we see this pattern in history of God preserving his people. We have another example 
where there is vulnerability, there is a gap in leadership, and God's going to protect his children. So I'm going to make more application later. But you as a church are in a time of transition. You have it, uh, I in no means intend to communicate that the church is an equivalent representative of what the kingdom was back in that day. That's not the case. But I think there is an application we can make by extension that as the leadership in the kingdom of Israel was vulnerable at that time, you as a church have a time where you don't have a senior pastor leading you. It can be a vulnerable time for churches. It can be a time of people stepping up to work together to pray for and, and see God lead wonderfully to bring that next leader, or it can be a time of division and fighting and people assuming responsibilities they're not supposed to have and causing trouble, right? So it's a vulnerable time, and it's something we need to seek the Lord about for his protection. But we have example here of, we'll see an example where God protects his people during those times. So let's look at verse 5 through 10, where we see here, um, with this weakness, there's a rebel who takes over. So we see in verse 5, it says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. And he had conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rei, and mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. But Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zeholoth, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. Now what's not clear when you first start reading that is, who is Adonijah? Well, hopefully by the end you picked it up, right? He is a son of David. He was born of uh, David's wife, wife Haggith, who's mentioned there in verse 5, but he was the fourth son born to David. It tells us, I believe it's uh, 2 Samuel 3, 4 there, um, the fourth son born to David, and uh, this, is, this is the son of David. So with a lack of David announcing who could be the next king, he figures, hey, I'm, I'm a son of the king, the promise of David having somebody rule on the throne is there, and I could fit in line with that promise, right? I'm a son of David. So he assumes the leadership. He builds a small army, and uh, he starts gaining allies for himself. So here's our first little uh, Bible story picture. This is Adonijah here. So Adonijah is uh, building, building his army, his forces. He's taking over. He's decided that he's going to be king, and he gets some people to come with him. He gets Joab, who is the commander of the army. You remember, he was David's commander for a long time. And David tried to replace him, and uh, he killed the guy David tried to replace him with, right? But uh, he joins with uh, Adonijah, and we get the priest as well. Abiathar joins with him, and they're working with him. 
And, however, we're told in verse 8 that not everybody was with him, right? Tell, we're told that uh, Zadok the priest wasn't with him, Nathan the prophet wasn't with him, and many of the mighty men who were with David weren't with him, all right? So he didn't have everybody, though he did have a lot. And he also is throwing his celebration here. It tells us in uh, verse 9 and 10, he, he makes a sacrifice, and he invites, invites all these people to come, except he leaves out Solomon as well as the other people who weren't loyal to him. Why, why did he leave out Solomon? Probably because he knew David wanted Solomon to be the next king. So he was assuming leadership here that he was not given, and he's going beyond and taking leadership on his own. Now, um, we mentioned here... Um, there is many different times where God's people experience difficulties and transitions and uh, vulnerability. We see an example here where God allows, at least for a short period of time, uh, this challenge, this rebel leadership to be there. Now, it doesn't look like he gets much authority or is able to take it very far, as we'll, we'll see. But there are times where God does allow his people to suffer under... Uh, bad leaders. Um, and again, as we're making application, try to make it real personal for you today, uh, I think it's good for you to recognize in a church there can be a similar kind of trying to usurp authority that's not appropriate. And especially with not having a senior pastor, you're extra vulnerable for that. So, number one, Fulfill the roles that God has given you and, and that it has been decided in the church, but diligently pray for God's protection during this vulnerable time and that uh, the transition will happen and will be smooth. All right? But we see here someone steps in to take this leadership um, in, uh, inappropriately, and we're going to see then how this gets resolved. So, we're going to see the prophet to the rescue here. I, I mentioned last week, we'll see it repeatedly, the role of the prophets are very significant in the books of First and Second Kings. And we see that again here. Verse 11, let's read 11 to 14, where we see Nathan the prophet step in. So we see verse 11, he says to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. So come now, please, let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my Lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall, shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So, I read that kind of quickly, but basically, Nathan is laying out here the plan, right? He, he warns Bathsheba of the danger, so Adonijah's taken control, he's not invited Solomon, so he's assuming this leadership on his own, and if Solomon's not invited, he probably doesn't have friendly plans for Solomon in the long term, you and your son are in danger, because that's what humans do, sinful human beings do, when they take leadership they're not supposed to have, they want to remove all challenges to their leadership. 
So Nathan is warning her, you're in danger. You're in danger. So he said, here's the plan. So basically, you're going to go talk to David, and then I'm going to come in after you and talk to David. So it'll kind of be like a two witnesses confirming the story and uh, making sure David is aware. So it's, it's a plan that he lays out here that the two of them are going to follow. Um, so Nathan here, this is a picture of Nathan. Nathan is talking to Bathsheba. So I have a, a question, though, that I want you to think about and we'll look at. How do you think Nathan is confident... Solomon's supposed to be the next king. If all the nation didn't seem to know, how does Nathan know? Okay, it could be that God told him. Did somebody say something different than that? All right. Could be David told him, right? Um, and that uh, Nathan heard that. You know, Nathan was the one that took word to David saying, you're not going to build the temple your son is, Right? Um, so Nathan had a very important role in the life of David. So he was in the inner circle uh, with David, and, and probably with that he knew. So it's interesting when you, uh, you look at it. Um, I, I would suggest to you God had chosen Solomon and made that known. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 22. 1 Corinthians 22. Um, but this may be a situation where God only revealed it to David, and, uh, and therefore David just needed to tell other people. Um, kind of like the story of uh, Rebecca with uh, her twin boys, right? Jacob and Esau. God reveals to Rebecca that I've chosen Jacob, right? <laughs> Um, but yet, Dad seems to favor Esau, and Rebecca, I believe, based on that, favors Isaac. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Second Chronicles 20. Did I say first? First Chronicles. I'm so sorry. First Chronicles. I'm getting uh, ahead of myself here. First Chronicles 22, verses six and seven. Uh, Vic, six through ten. What happens here is David is looking at building the temple, and he's preparing for that. And notice what he says here in verse 6 to Solomon. It says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord, but the word of the Lord came to me. All right, so this is what David's saying. God told me, you have shed much blood and have waged your great wars. You, you shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you, which shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. You know what's interesting about that quote? is it's very similar to what Nathan tells David uh, that the Lord revealed. So Nathan is the one that delivers that initial message to David saying, the Lord has said, you're not going to build the temple, your son is. But when you read it in Samuel, you don't read the name of his son being mentioned there. 
But when you read here in Chronicles, we see that David is saying that God has revealed Solomon is to be the king. So Solomon is the one God has chosen. So it may be, and it's a little bit of speculation, it may be that Nathan actually delivered this part of the message as well. We just don't have the whole thing in Samuel. So, um, but it's clear God chose Solomon. David knows that. Bathsheba knows that because David's told her. The problem is David just hasn't made that known publicly and enforced it. So that's what we're going to see happens, though, as a result of this plan. So we're not going to read it, but what does happen is Bathsheba then goes and talks to David. And she says, did you know that? Or she said, do you intend to make Solomon my son king, as you said? Because Adonijah is king. And then after Bathsheba, then Nathan arrives and says, O king, did you make Adonijah king in your place? Because he's thrown a feast and a big party and he's invited everyone except for Solomon. So this then, we see a response in verse 28 of David to this news. Because David is so weak, he's bedridden, he doesn't really know what's going on. And we see David respond. So we see here David is going to react to what he's told by Bathsheba and Nathan. And we see David is going to resolve the matter. So we see in verses 28 to 31, basically 28 to 31, David says to Bathsheba, Yes, I promised you Solomon will be king, and that's what's going to happen. So he is reaffirming his promise to Bathsheba, 28 to 31. And then we see in verses 32, David is going to make it happen. So we, it was, let's read 32 to 37. We'll pause there and then read, uh, read some more. But we see David's plan here. Verse 32. Then David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and be my king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king say, and the Lord has been with my Lord the king, so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord David. So here we have the king putting it into action, right? He's now stepping in. He is now going to work on transferring the kingdom to his son, and uh, he's calling the men to make that happen. He gives them the instructions, and we see verses 38 to 40 that they do this. So Zadok the priest... Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. So we see here the problem is being resolved. All right, We still have a rebel king, and we need to see that resolved, which actually is going to happen pretty quickly. 
but we see the king spring into action. So we see here a very interesting thing about how God works. Sometimes when we see God work, it's dramatic and it's life-changing. It's, it's only explainable as God did it. In this case, it's very subtle. God used a prophet. God used the wife of the king. They go and they talk to the, the king, and it happens a very subtle way for it to be accomplished. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that God is providentially working to accomplish his purposes. And many times that's actually how it works in our lives. We want to see the dramatic. We want it to be clear. We want it to be obvious. But God often works very subtly behind the scenes, working through people, working through our circumstances to accomplish his good purposes. And that takes faith. We need to recognize and, and see that by faith. And I would again encourage you that God is at work in your midst. You have a need for a transition, and it is a potential time of vulnerability, and it is a time, therefore, to be diligent in praying and trusting and waiting for God to work, right? And it may be just very simple using normal human beings to be involved in routine work to carry it out for God to bring that next person. We just need to keep praying and trust that God will do that and preserve his people in the process, his church in the process, all right? Let's look at uh, how the rebel power here then is undone, well, how we see the rest of the story unfold. Um, we see the rebel powers are subdued here in verses 41 to 48. We won't read that, but uh, basically what happens there is news breaks about what happened with Solomon and his being anointed. And the, the, the word arrives, I think, through Jonathan, Jonathan Abiathar's son. Um, and uh, they hear word, and they get the news of everything that happened. Yeah, it says 42, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, came. He brings the news, and so basically he's crashed the party. Uh, he's got bad news, and uh, basically Adonijah's going to repent here. Um, his party is over. You can see what I uh, just illustrated the picture here. His loyal people are quickly bolting because they know it's over. Solomon is going to be the king. He is going to have the authority and backing uh, of David and, and the army ultimately and uh, have all the resources so they know they have no chance. They need to end it. But let's look at how Adonijah responds here at the end, starting with verse 49. So it says, Then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified, and they arose and went on, on their way. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. And he arose, he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Um, now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for behold, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So it's interesting. We see this thing in Israel multiple times where men who are in trouble 
run to the run to the tabernacle and, and grab a hold of the horns of the altar because they're essentially saying, have mercy on me, don't kill me, and if you're going to kill me, surely you're not going to do it here in front of the altar, right? So uh, there are times later, I, I think probably not long ahead of our, us, where we'll see if they refuse to leave, they, they actually do die there. But in this case, that's not what's going to happen. Um, notice how Solomon responds to this. His, one of his first uh, acts as a king. It was told this to Solomon, verse 51, we saw. And then 42, or 52, Solomon said, If he is a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall on the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. So, He's repenting, right? He's recognizing he did wrong, and Solomon could take his life. So he's acknowledging he did wrong. He's here expressing submission to the king. Now, I, I believe it's chapter 2. Uh, we're going to see uh, Adonijah's submission doesn't last very long. So Adonijah's going to hatch a plot to, uh, uh, in a way try to subtly get the, the throne, and uh, Solomon's going to see through that and deal with that. But at least for now, he responds in uh, peaceful submission here, and Solomon allows him to live. So, very interesting. We start the chapter with a vulnerable situation in the kingdom in Israel. And now we must say, as we think about the children of Israel and what they've done, remember that God was their king, and they were rejecting God's rulership over them and wanting human kings like the rest of the nations around them. So one of the consequences of that is this tension with power transfer. Because a new king of a new family gets in power, one of the things they typically do is they like to wipe out all of the competing powers. That was, I think we mentioned that a maybe last week or a couple weeks ago, that was actually one of the things Saul was concerned about with David becoming the new king. He begged David not to wipe out his family because that's what human kings from different families did when they took over. They wanted to eliminate any claim to the throne. And that's a consequence of their choice to have human kings. So we see that tension. However... We also see God's providential protection of his people. God's providential protection of his people. And so, um, I think I've already said a lot of this just to reemphasize it for you. Um, again, the kingdom here in Israel is not the same as the church is today. But I believe we have some principles that apply, that we could apply to churches. And in your case, you are in a situation of a change, and therefore that can be vulnerable time. Um, I, I won't, uh, there's, there's lots of examples, and you're maybe even aware of some too, but um, I don't want to in any way discourage you, but there can be times where things take years because of contention and arguing and fighting over small matters that don't matter. Um, I, uh, we were aware of a, 
a really good church, we thought, in, uh, in another state. And uh, took them two years to find somebody. And it was a time of going through some hard stuff and working through things because there was two segments of the church that were at odds in what they thought was needed. That's a common challenge. And so we need to be on guard. We need to be watchful of our own attitudes and responses in these situations and be diligent to pray. So, uh, God, you are in a time of transition. You need to be vigilant to pray. But God is at work, and you need to pray that God bring you the right pastor. And trust, trust that the people God has put in responsibility right now to carry that work out, that they're doing that work faithfully. So encourage them, pray for them, and pray that God bring you that right person in the right time so that your uh, service to Christ will continue and you'll faithfully go on and grow and continue serving. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson from Kings about your faithfulness and taking care of your people in a vulnerable time. And in many ways, we look at the present situation and it doesn't feel very dangerous, but we know the wicked one is alive and tries to do harm. We pray that you'd keep him away. We pray that you would help the church to be unified. We pray that you would provide that next person in your time to be a, a person, to be a godly leader, and continue to help the church to go forward and grow as you would intend. And pray f I pray that you'd give wisdom to, to the church to be discerning about the needs and what, what is best. And we pray that you'd help us individually as well to be uh, encouraged about your providential care over our lives and how every detail uh, you're aware, you're at work, and you're accomplishing your good purposes so we don't have to be afraid. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.